from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. So you can head there in your Bible. I am really excited because today, right after this service, pretty much, our family's going on a week vacation in Vancouver. This is the first kind of all-family vacation Heather and I were saying maybe five or six years. I don't even remember the last one. That's how long it was. So we're really, really excited about that. We've never seen the coast. Well, Heather has, but the rest of us haven't. So we're really, really pumped about that. So that being said, I will not be answering texts. I will not be answering emails. Uh, just remember that I'm, I'm totally off the grid this week. So next Tuesday, the following, you know, a week from this coming Tuesday, I'll be back online. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To, him, to them he gave the name Boanerges, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I want to walk us through this text. This is a hugely important text within the context of the Gospel of Mark and within the biblical story. First thing I want you to notice and draw your attention to, I just want to walk through it more or less verse by verse. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside. In Luke 6, 2, it says that before Jesus calls this group of 12 to him, he prays all night. He spends all night on the mountain praying. And so Luke gives us a little bit more information of how, what a, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is saying, I'm going to gather to myself a group of men who are going to do ministry with me, but I'm also going to pour into them that they would continue the ministry even when I'm gone. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and he called to himself those he wanted, and they came to him. And in some of the other Gospels, we read that more than 12 came, but then he selected 12 from the group, the group of followers or disciples. And it said he appointed 12, designating them apostles. Now, within the biblical story, this is a really charged moment. Reading with kind of modern eyes, we read this and we're like, okay, Pick 12 people. But the number 12 is significant to the people of Israel. Does anyone know where that number crops up in the Old Testament? 12 tribes of Israel, which were kind of correlated to the 12 sons of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that lineage, Jacob's sons. So you have these 12 tribes, which are God's people, Israel, the people of God. And Jesus goes up on a mountainside, like Moses does in Exodus, to hear from God, and then he gathers 12 men. So to a Jewish person seeing this happening, we have to understand this is incredibly charged and loaded with meaning. It's very clear that Jesus is doing something massive. He's putting himself in the place. He's a a new Moses. He's ascending a new mountain. And he is receiving from God an instruction. And then it says he 
appointed 12. And the word in Greek for appointed is um, epeosen, but the root of epeosen is poeo, which means to make or to create. So the root of what Jesus is doing is he created 12. And that's an echo to the Old Testament. Because in Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah reminds God's people that it was he, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who formed you. Isaiah says, God formed you, O Israel. You, weren't a, you were a bunch of nobodies. You were a slave. God took this rabble and he made you, he created you into a nation. Jesus sees these crowds, these followers. He takes from among them, we're going to find out, a, a rabble, nothing really to speak of. And he says, I'm forming you to be a new kind of Israel, a reformation of Israel. It says that he forms them that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and he gives them authority to drive out demons. So there's a purpose behind what he's doing. He's saying, I'm gathering this new Israel, the, the heavily symbolic what Jesus is doing. People are like, where is this going? This new Moses bringing us a new vision for what the kingdom of God looks like. Now remember also, up to this point, Jesus has had some pretty significant encounters with the religious authorities. They've now plotted to kill him because they're wondering whether or not he is actually standing within kind of the Jewish tradition. And if they were wondering about that before, can you imagine how subversive and how insightful it would be, inciting it would be, to have Jesus say, um... Yeah, I'm going to go on a mountain. I'm going to create, I'm going to call to myself 12 people. I'm going to create this new Israel. I mean, the religious leaders have to be fuming because this is part of what they're going to very soon in Mark say. See, he's not actually representing God. He couldn't be. It looks like he's replacing God's people with, with, with a new Israel. What is going on? Who does, he th who does this person think he is that he could form a new Israel? Only God forms nations. Who is this person who thinks he can form and create out of nothing from a, group of, uh, from, from a group of nobodies a people that are going to be in the service of God? But he calls them together and he says, you 12 specifically have three purposes. I want you to be with me. And that's both and. It's not just their being with Jesus to learn from him what it means to be a light to the nations and to learn from the Son of God what it means to be an em emissary of the kingdom. It's also, Jesus says, I'm, not gonna, I'm choosing not to do this alone. Jesus was not a, you know, a lone ranger leader. We don't see Jesus just kind of, he wasn't kind of this, uh, what we would think of as a modern, autonomous, um, self-sufficient leader. He says, the mission that I have, I can't do by myself. It's very, very instructive to us. Because it's always tempting in every generation. And I would argue, in, increasingly, in, in modern times, where there's such an emphasis on individualism, it's important to remember there has never been someone who has flourished in the way of Jesus as a lone ranger. Christianity, you can't lone ranger Christianity. You can't do this thing on your own. Jesus doesn't even choose to do it on his own. He says, I need you to be with me. And within this group of 12, there's going to be an intimacy here that is not on offer to anybody else who I come into contact with. He says, I want you to be with me. I'm going to send you out to preach. 
to proclaim and to teach the foundational truths of the kingdom of God, establishing it in this generation for all the generations to follow, and I'm going to give you authority to drive out demons. Now, these three callings, um, almost everybody, uh, well, yeah, all Bible commentators worth their weight, I think, um, to say it mildly, recognize this is something that, yes, it was given to these first 12. But in principle, these three priorities really should frame our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. If you are following Jesus sincerely, your call in one of its simplified forms is to be with Jesus, grow in that intimacy that Blair talked about, that falling in your face intimacy with God where I just know God. It's not a secondhand faith that I got because I grew up in the church or my parents had it or my friends have it. It's a firsthand encounter with the living Christ. We're called to preach or to proclaim the good news, the truth of what the kingdom of God is, who God is, how we're called to live. And we're called to drive out demons. And I'll talk about that, what that means in a second. Um, I, f- I came across a quote um, by Donald English, who was the commentator that I read a lot. He had a really good commentary on Mark. And he says this. He says, his critique of modern Christianity is this. Many Christians today seem to spend much more time being with Jesus and very little time actually proclaiming and casting out demons. And then he goes right for seminaries. <laughs> much of the training for ordination also seems to concentrate on the pastoral concerns of caring for the immediate church community. And all of that is necessary, but if dominant, if that's the focus of what it means to train and prepare pastors in the kingdom of God is to, how to care for the 50 to 500 people that are part of your church, he says it can lead to a narrowing down of our perception of the gospel. And it leads to an inward-looking perspective on church life. He says, what we see here is a missionary perspective of proclamation and casting out evil spirits. And those two things held in tension force us to test our understanding of the gospel in settings of those who actually don't believe what we believe and who are maybe against what we believe. There, in these spaces, we are much more vulnerable and at risk. And there, for that reason, we can prove the extent and power and the message of God's authority. If we hold back from this risk of preaching and driving out demons, we shall never discover how great and many-sided the gospel is. If we hold back from the risk of proclamation, of just being with Jesus, our own little, like, Jesus and me bubble, this is nice, safe space, and go out to proclaim, go go out to drive out demons, we will never discover how great and many-sided the gospel actually is. Now, for some people, depending on your background, or whether or not you have any church background whatsoever, you might hear the thing about driving out demons and be like, that sounds super spooky. I don't know what's going on. That sounds weird. What are you talking about? I get to be with Jesus. Okay, we should cultivate a relationship with Christ. I get preaching. I don't see myself as a preacher, but the idea of sharing God's truth with people in ways big and small. Okay, I get that, but driving out demons. Well, first of all, we have to understand this is given to 12 apostles uniquely, and part of what they were empowered to do was to drive out demons 
in order to establish the truth that they were, in fact, apostles, that they had special designation. Usually when Jesus does miracles, it's not just for show. It's to validate his message. I'm the son of God. Really? Yes, I can turn water into wine. I can walk on water. I can do these things. I can raise people from the dead. It forced people to say, oh, well, talk is cheap, but if this guy can raise people who are dead or give life to limbs that have none, okay, I have to I have to wrestle with his, where his authority comes from at the very least, but he's obviously someone working with power. So Jesus gives these 12 men the authority over demons. But again, the principle is still the same in that as Christians, every one of us is called to go into the world and confront realities of evil. And confront realities of evil that, yes, sometimes have a demonic influence about them. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked, or last week we talked about in the scripture, we never see demons battling Jesus. It's not a fair fight. The Bible never presents Satan or his fallen angels as equal in power to Jesus. Satan is not yin to Jesus. is yang. Satan poses no threat to Jesus. What demons and the enemies of God do, forces of evil, they run interference on the kingdom of God, where they see the kingdom of God breaking forth, where they see people trying to press deeper into the gospel, where they see people trying to live out the gospel, in all kinds of subtle ways, they run interference. And I think the principle here for us as Christians today is to say, when we look out into the world and we see people individually or corporately trapped by forces at play that are, are clearly demonic, that are anti-God, that are anti-life, that are anti-creation, are we going into those places and in Jesus' name, whatever that looks like, casting out those, those evil forces, confronting them, pushing back and saying, you don't have a right to rule here. Again, uh, English, uh, Donald English says this. He says, we're prone to apply casting out impure spirits or demons in a very individual way. And he says, but there is much, however, in both Paul's widening picture in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 2, and to observe in world history that there are demonic forces at play in institutions and in systems and in cultures and in hierarchies. At, very, at the very least, it explains how groups of humans made in the image of God can become so destructive to each other. He says, exorcism, the idea of casting out demons, in this context, is not just about individual spiritual liberation. It's also about going into the world and looking for institutions and structures that are holding people, that are oppressing and suppressing people, and working for the liberation of those under those institutions. It looks for places of injustice and cruelty and neglect. Those are demonic forces that work in the world. And we go into those places and we bring the hope of the gospel in tangible ways by offering justice and mercy and care and support. We look for places of corruption and greed where the gods of profit are sought at any cost and we confront those places. And with our words and with our mouths, we seek to rescue from those systems, people who are caught in cycles of injustice, cycles of abuse. He has this great line. He says, the charismatics, meaning people who tend to overemphasize maybe demons and demonic forces at the individual level, and social justice radicals who tend to emphasize demonic forces at play in big societal structures, he says, they're actually nearer to one another than they think they are when you actually get down into the action. He says, it's tragic to see in parts of our world strong Pentecostal churches 
largely supporting governments who wield demonic power, while congregations are practicing rescuing individuals from demonic forces. And it's equally sad to see Christians struggling in the political sphere and doing social justice stuff and trying to attack some of these larger systemic things who are ignorant of the Spirit's power to heal and invade on the personal level. And so again, the threefold call of a disciple is to be with Jesus to, so that we can come to know who he is, know his truth, proclaim that truth, and cast out demons. But don't, don't hear that in some kind of um, over-the-top, hyper-spiritual way. Casting out demons is a biblical way uh, of categorizing, I think in principle, all the ways in which forces of darkness and evil in this world, that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. He says your battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realm. We're to go into the world and confront those. What confronting those looks like is very different depending on our context. But to be a Christian is to be a person who is strong in their relationship with Jesus, growing in that relationship with Jesus, and then learning every day what it means to speak to that truth and to confront places of evil and injustice in the world and bring God's light. Verse 16, this is what um, Jesus does. He, he appoints them, and he says, these are the 12 he appointed, Simon, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Okay, this is one of the most comical ragtag groups you're ever going to find anywhere. Um, this is kind of like Robin Hood and his band of merry men, except they're not really merry, and there's not a lot of natural simpatico. We know there's not a lot of natural simpatico. This is not an affinity group. This is not Jesus saying, I'm going to pick all the 12 people who get along the best with each other and like me and kind of totally get what's going on and what I'm about. There's lots of people who kind of are just after me for the miracles, but these 12 totally get it. They're, they're tracking with me. They understand what I mean by the kingdom of God. They know where the trajectory of my life is headed. These are kind of like the first-rate superstars. That is not the case at all. What's a little clue here? You, you've now known heard a little bit of, about the background of Mark. What's one clue, what's one relationship amongst these 12 that right away you should be yellow flagging and saying, that would be kind of weird and awkward. Can you think of one? Did you see one? Judas. So right away, the author says, Jesus uh, gathers his dream team. Nope. He gathers these 12 and right out of the gate, uh, Mark says, oh, and just remember, this is, the, this is that Judas who betrayed him. It's not a different Judas. This is the one. So right away, this is not the A-team. This is not special forces. These are regular people and in some cases are going to fail in spectacular ways. What's another relationship dynamic that you see uh, amongst the 12? Blair? Uh, the tax collector and the zealot. Tax collector and the zealot. Remember, you have four groups that arise in the intertestamental period. Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. Zealots want to overthrow the Roman authorities. No king but God. Only God could be in, should be in charge. We should never have pagans ruling over us. And zealots are willing to use military force to overthrow Rome and those who conspire with Rome. I'm Matthew, I'm a tax collector, I'm a Jew, but I also steal from my people in order to forward the agenda of Rome. I make a lot of money doing this. I'm part of the ancient world's 1%. Jesus says, Matthew, uh, um, Simon, come here. 
we're, we're going we're gonna to do this together. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Simon's reaction isn't like, oh, I don't like that guy. Simon's reaction is, I'm going to kill that guy. This, I've lived my whole life against people like this. This guy stands, this Matthew, this tax collector stands for everything that, in terms of what I value, is diametrically opposed. Jesus is putting together a new Israel, a new people for the new kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing how awkward and just nonsensical it looks from a human point of view? If someone were to say to you, God is going to come in human form and he's going to get together a team of people through whom he's going to advance his mission, you could have people brainstorming what that group is going to look like for a thousand years. You would never come up with this group. It is not the best of the best on any level. Mark is scathingly honest through the rest of his gospel at highlighting the failures. One commentator that I read actually says, um, all the other gospel writers kind of soften how dysfunctional and how out of touch these 12 are with Jesus. They omit certain parts of stories and certain failings in stories that Mark actually doesn't omit. Mark makes it very clear Jesus is using regular, ordinary, broken sinners, which is risky, but that's what God likes to do. He doesn't just call superstars on his team. This isn't kind of like the all-American football team. This is people who shouldn't even really have a rabbi, shouldn't have access to a rabbi by any modern, for their day, uh, sense of entitlement. But that's like me. That's like you. Isn't that amazing? That Christianity is open, and Jesus wants to be close and wants the disciple and wants to use people who are really messed up and have messed up backgrounds and don't get it are slow, are stubborn, and slow to kind of connect the dots. Christian community, right from the very start of the Gospels, has always been kind of awkward and uncomfortable. Because from the start, God has always been pulling together people who would, from a human point of view, probably just rather not hang out together. Christian community has never been an affinity group. And it's very dangerous when we as Christians or we as churches try and form Christianity into affinity groups. It's never going to happen. Christianity, when Jesus forms community, he forms community not around what does everybody have in common, what do you like, okay. He's not bending, he's saying, I have a kingdom mission, this is what we're here for. I'm going to get people who would hate each other's guts to learn to love each other and love me and to move forward in mission together. There are no supermen or superwomen in the New Testament, only sinners, saves by, only sinners saved by grace. The other gospel writers soften down some of the stories, but Mark wants to show us that the apostles were people just like us with all of our weaknesses. They even have nicknames. You notice that? A lot of these guys have nicknames. And some of the nicknames aren't good. James and John are called sons of thunder. That's not like a compliment. Thunder doesn't do anything. It's just loud. James and John, you see them in the gospels. They're just loud mouths. They're braggarts. They want to be, they're like, when they're all walking along the road, they kind of cozy up to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, like, when you come into your kingdom, we know where this is going. You're going to be in charge. Super awesome. Could I have, like, the seat of power on your right side and my brother the left? I mean, you're number one, of course. 
but could I be two and my brother three? James and John, they have, they have no, or, yeah, they, they, just, they don't have a heart. For, they don't see where this is going. They don't see for a long time until after the resurrection. They don't even understand that what Jesus is doing is creating a community that is going to become great by becoming nothing, by being servants, by not trying to grab hold of power to leverage it for your own be- benefit, but to be empowered by the Spirit for the benefit of other people. That's very, very different. When Jesus gathers a community, it's not what you'd expect. It is tense. It is weird. It feels uncomfortable. It's not what we would often choose. Christian community has always been awkward and difficult, but that's not a reason to flee from it. And yet, more and more people are removing themselves from local church gatherings or being a part of the church. And it's essentially because they realize, oh, I don't like the church because it's full of imperfect people. And there's people there that I don't like. And there's people there that have different priorities than me. And there's people there that don't worship the way that I think people should worship. And there's people there that have a different understanding of certain Bible texts than me. And you know what would be easier? I'm just going to do this on my own. Or I'll do something on my own with a few people, like three or four, who like get it. Like the people who think like me and kind of get, like we get Jesus. So we'll kind of do it. Those, those move, movements always fail. Because that's never how Jesus gathers. Whenever it's an authentic gathering uh, of Jesus, it's always full of people who are like, we all look around, we just look honestly in each other's eyes and say, I don't really know how this is going to work. It shouldn't work on paper, so God has got to be in this. But we're going to learn why God has put this particular constellation of people together. And that's not going to be easy, but it's going to be important and it's going to be meaningful. Really quickly, just a side tangent. I don't know if this will be helpful to people, but I thought of Joseph Meyer's book, The Search for Community, which really impacted me when I was in my uh, mid-20s, I think. He worked with a sociologist called Edward Hall, and he identified four kinds of spaces through which we build community. And it's interesting because these four spaces are pretty well correlated to Jesus' ministry. We see Jesus doing this. So he said there's four spaces. There's the public space, the social, the personal, and the intimate. Um... Public space are spaces where there's 40 or more people. This would be like a, an example of public space. Social space would be a slightly, we would, we would think of maybe as a medium-sized group. Personal space is 5 to 15 people. Intimate space is 1 to 3. So if we were going to look at it pictorially in terms of a graph, um, Joseph Meyer says this is how roughly, sociologically speaking, the average human being experiences community. We experience community in spaces of a lot of people. We experience communication... Uh, community in spaces that are medium-sized groups. We experience communication in the personal and then in intimate settings. This is what really impacted me about um, kind of this sociological insight. We We need relationships in all of these spaces in order to be healthy. One of the things that Joseph Myers said was that it's not that some of these spaces are better or higher than the other. They're all important. To be a healthy, functioning human being, just as a baseline, we need to have intimate relationships. We also need to have relationships with a slightly broader group of friends, but we also need to have relationships um, that are maybe seem more impersonal in nature, but are actually really, really important. When we gather together like this, there isn't the kind of intimacy that you can get from a one-on-one coffee but it's still a kind of community building that happens here, and it's very, very important. 
And so one of the things that Joseph Myers said was that we need to recognize that we need to have relationships along all these spheres. If we think that we don't need one of the, I don't need intimate relationships, or I don't need some of this larger group stuff. I'm just going to be all about small, intimate accountability. That's actually not healthy. We need relationships across these spans. But we're also limited in our capacity to build relationships the more intimate the space becomes. Meaning, you're not, you know, that, that group size at the bottom is also roughly correlated to how many people in your life will probably be able to inhabit that space, how many relationships you're actually going to be able to sustain in that space. You will likely not be able to sustain more than three genuinely intimate relationships in your life at any given point. It's, it's unlikely. Because the, the kind of vulnerability, time together, sacrifice that it takes to, to cultivate and maintain that, you can't spread that out over 10 people, over 15 people. And again, there's about somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, five to 15 people that you'll be personal with. You're not, they're not going to know everything about you, but they're going to be like close friends, good friends. And then there's lots of other people that you know who are going to be like acquaintances and people, you know, you see at church and you care about them and they care about you, but your lives don't have a huge degree of overlap. And then there's a ton of people, the Nelson community, you know, uh, Vancouver Canuck fans, whatever it is that you feel an affinity with, but you know very, very little about these people. And what struck me about that insight was a few things. Number one, be very, very careful, very careful who you allow into the intimate and personal spaces in your life. Especially right now if you're in high school, junior high, high school, young adult. Be very, very careful who you allow into the intimate personal spaces in your life. Because those people will have an amplifying effect in terms of how your character and your um, view of the world is shaped. Those who walk with the wise shall become wise. Those who walk with the foolish shall become foolish. Make sure you have close, godly, wise Christian friends and thank God for them and, and, and hold them close during those formative years. But that's true for all of us. Another insight that I think was important for me was to recognize the goal of life isn't to push all of our relationships this way. We cannot sustain 10, 15, 20 intimate relationships. It's not possible. We can't even sustain 30 or 40 personal relationships, and that's okay. We should look at our lives, and I'm saying, I'm saying that as a confession because sometimes what the message that churches send is everybody in the church should be like super close with each other, and we should be all be BFFs, and if we're not, then there's something wrong. We should be growing in community, and what they mean by community is personal or intimate relationships, and I just don't actually think that's healthy. It's not possible. If I'm you know, God willing, at this church for the next 20 or 30 years, 20 years from now, I'm still probably only going to have two or three really intimate connections. It's, that's, that's the human capacity. We see it in the life of Jesus. You have the crowds. You have the followers. You have his 12. Then you have his group of three. Peter, James, John. Jesus, fully human, shows us this pattern. And that's normal. That's okay. Peter, James, and John had a different kind of access to Jesus than anyone else, even amongst the 12. And that's normal, and that's okay. And the last insight that I should mention, and I think it's important, is for us to recognize that we should be careful in recognizing that every space, um, we have to be careful what we expect each space to provide in our lives. There's a lot of people 
who want the public space of church service on Sunday to provide intimate connection and community. It'll never happen. It'll never, never happen. I've heard of people who leave churches because they're like, I came every Sunday, and I just, and when they talk about what they were expecting, I'll say to them, oh, you were expecting intimate connection or even personal. That, that's not going to happen on a Sunday. By the nature of the amount of people in this room, it, it, it cannot happen. And that's okay. It's not supposed to build community on that level. That's why we have focus groups and Bible studies and small groups and then maybe accountability partners that layer these different forms of community into our lives. And they're all important, but we need to understand that we all need these spaces and that these spaces provide different experiences of community for us. Okay, here's my close. Verse 14. It says, when Jesus appointed the 12, when he created them, when he formed them, the text says he designated them as apostles. And the word apostles in the Greek literally means sent ones. It's people who Jesus gathers in order to send. Community, forming the 12, isn't the end in itself. I'm here to build community. That's not what Jesus says. I'm here on a mission. So I'm bringing you together to teach you and then send you out. You're going to be with me, and then you're going to go and proclaim, and you're going to go and cast out demons. You're going to confront evil in the world. That's the purpose. The purpose is mission. Now, there's no longer apostles today like there was, like these 12. These are the 12, um, what are called apostolic, uh, the office of apostle. They were those who were given authority by Jesus to teach and lay down the foundational teaching of Christianity. But, again, the principle moves, to, uh, moves through today, which is that, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we're all, not capital A apostles, but we're all apostles. We're all sent ones. After his resurrection in, in Matthew 28, this is what Jesus says. He says to the disciples, to anyone who was around him, even people who were doubting, verse 17, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to be someone who is sent, to recognize that life is mission. Everybody in this room, why are we gathered here on Sunday? Yes, it's to worship God, but it's to worship God so that he can remind us who he is, his greatness, his glory that Blair testified to, put a word, his word, into our lives, maybe something through a sermon or through a song, and then he sends us out in mission. Go and share my words with people. Go and share my, light, my love and my grace with people. The gospel is that Jesus was sent to gather a people who would be sent to gather more people. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. I'm gathering you to send you. I have a mission for you. You're important. You might think you're ordinary. You might think your life is boring. You might think your life can't make a dent in eternity. And Jesus says you need to repent of that. That is not true. You are being sent. I'm sending you into this community, into this home, into this context, into this school, into this sports team. I'm sending you to bear witness to my love and to my grace. You know the early covenanters? Do you know what their original name was? They called themselves mission friends. Not friends who have a mission. Mission friends. Their entire identity was, we're in the mission of God. 
And in doing that mission, we build friendships. And that is the key to all genuine Christian community. Christian community is always sustained and fueled if we're moving into mission together. If, if Christian community is just about how do we build community as a concept, it always kind of goes toxic and poisonous and rots. If we are coming together to do mission, we find six months later, two years later, I'm close to these people. These people matter to me, and I'm, God's using these people in my life in a way that is surprising and delightful and amazing. Christian community is built on mission. A Christian is a sent one. Sometimes you're sent far, like Blair was, or like uh, Stacy and Marie are, or our Ecuador team this afternoon is going to be sent far. But we're all at least sent near. We're all missionaries. We're all meant to be in mission and to understand our calling is mission. Some people I meet, some Christians in their life, and they're, they're like, that, that isn't my life. Like, my life's kind of humdrum and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's on you. That's not God's design for your life. You need to repent of that. And you need to say, maybe there's a mission that I've kind of been ignoring or dismissing or not seeing. God, would you give me eyes to see how me moving into my workplace this week is mission? Would you give me eyes to see how me moving into this volunteer role is mission? How me moving into my home and parenting my kids, how that's a part of your mission? Give me eyes to see that, God. And when you live like that, my experience has been life becomes electric when you realize your life is mission. And that God is sending you constantly every day into all these spheres to be a witness to his light and his love. Life becomes electric. Life doesn't become boring. It doesn't become easy. But it becomes deeply meaningful and purposeful. So this morning, I'm going to now call up the Ecuador team who's leaving uh, this afternoon. You guys can come up. These people fit the biblical definition of a lowercase a apostle. These are sent ones. These are people who are being sent from one context to another to preach God's truth, to proclaim it, and to be part of confronting evil and supporting those who are trying to bring in the kingdom of God into reality in Ecuador. So I'm gonna, I want to pray for them in a moment. Um, but as we pray for them, I want us to re remember that, again, we're not just sending them out. We're sending them out, and then God is sending all of us out. Some to Ecuador, some to Baker Street. But we're all on mission, and we should live with that kind of intentionality. Okay, this is what I'm going to ask you guys to do. If you guys don't mind, could you guys kind of clump together in the middle? And then any family or friends quickly that want to come up here and pray with me as I pray over these guys, you're welcome to do that. So do that quick. Friends and family, you can come up and you lay on hands and just bless these guys. Also, we created a, a page on our website, nelsoncovenant.com, called Ecuador Prayer Page, where we have kind of specific prayer requests for each day of their trip. So you can go to our website and kind of track each day with what this team has said they want prayer for over that time. And that's a really, really great way that we can be supporting them as they're gone. So let's pray.